0: Here we go, March the 2nd, 2014, lecture discussion number 145 on the Book of Romans. And uh, Before I get into where we are, where we have been, and where we will be here for the next few weeks, uh, notice that Russia has moved its military into the Crimean Peninsula. That is not something that you should neglect watching. That is very, very important no matter your age. It's particularly interesting for us who are uh, waiting for the rapture especially if you have no retirement system, which is exactly my predicament. I am unaffected by the collapse of the stock market. There's no possibility it can hurt me. I am the most secure as you could possibly be, which means that I'm broke. But Russia moving. Russia is a major figure at the end of the age of the Gentiles. And if the end of the age of the Gentiles is on the precipice, then we need to know. Because that will change our lives. We will go from those who believe having not seen to those who see. That's a major change. There will be no doubt as to the truth of the Bible if the Russians move on Israel. And we have that confederacy from the north. And they're now taking, as I said, the Crimean Peninsula. They're occupying. Putin is unafraid of the United States. That also is an end times issue. At the end of the age... uh, any reference that might be the United States, and I say that as, as uh, carefully as I can, if we are in Scripture, and as a possibility we're not, but I think that we are, we are rendered uh, impotent. By what means? Who knows? It could be just simple politically. We are well on our way to our currency being, um, what's the word I want? Uh, certainly devalued, if not approaching insolvent. The principles of money are very important, and uh, the dollar is quickly losing one of those principles someday i 'll do an economic evaluation of the currency of this country and other countries what really what what fulfills the definition of currency? as I said, the dollar is losing one of those uh, elements anyway, just pay attention to russia it 's something to watch this week uh, he uh, The President of of Russia has absolutely no respect for nor any fear of the United States as it is currently politically, um, uh, how do I say this, Um, lead doesn't work uh, very well as an adjective, but as it is currently governed. So, okay, back to where I was. March 2nd, 2014, lecture discussion number 145. And we, uh, in the Book of Romans, we remain in our little foray into the subject uh, of uh, Entropy, where I left off last week. Again, this is a continuation of uh, this um, uh, debate that occurred between these two gentlemen, Mr. Ham and Mr. Nye. If you uh, have not been following, I'm trying to uh, uh, add uh, uh, my little input to it. Um, of course, uh, I recognize that what I'm providing probably is not appreciated by those who, who did what they did, but nonetheless, I, I thought it was a good idea. And since I have the holy dry erase marker here, and no one knows where I'm at, the NSA cannot find me yet, I'll be able to do what I want. I don't have a cell phone, or what we call, people ask me all the time, why don't you answer the phone? Well, I don't like the phone very much, for one, and for two, uh, our phone does not have long distance, and people call me from all over the world, and they expect me to call them back, uh, which uh, we don't have long distance. On my home phone, I have to call from the church phone, and I'm, I'm not necessarily inclined to do that very often. But anyway, uh, I have no way you can find me electronically. You have to knock on my door like normal people. But electronically, I'm in in, in, non available. Anyway, all that. Those of you who have been intentionally absent, and I can't blame you, I won't judge you, who, after all, willingly submits the sermons on informational and statistical entropy? Why would you do that? When you could go and watch sled dog races, right? And you can run from the amok reindeer. When did that happen? Did any of you do that this year? Helicopter rides. That's what Felicia is doing, isn't she? And Mark, they're doing their, they're, uh, running their helicopter down there. Anyway, while some of you were doing exactly that, the rest of us were here and therefore were referred to as the highest and most holy, and we were engaged in discussing thermodynamic principles with respect to evolutionary philosophy and concepts. In other words, do the laws of thermodynamics conflict with unintelligent processes? Now, by the way, that is not how I describe evolutionary philosophy. That is a self-description. That is how evolution so self-defines itself. Unintelligent processes. I found that ironic. But only I did. What I mean by that is that Darwinianism, at its foundation, at its underpinnings, asserts that life rose from non life. Ibiogenesis. Let me put that word on the, the word. There's you, your new vocabulary word of the day. Did I spell Genesis correctly? No, I forgot the E. I'll put it in there. biogenesis. that is the word that says that life from, rose from non-life. And it, and it did so by absolutely natural means. No intelligent agency. So it is unintelligent, non-intelligent, natural processes. There is no intelligent agency, no person, if you will, involved at any point, anywhere. The mechanisms for life to come from non-life is uh, most commonly presented as electrical and radiation pressures. And uh, those uh, radiation and electrical pressures, call it lightning if that helps you, uh, radi- or sunlight or radiation from the, uh, from the cosmos, whatever you wish, uh, that pressure comes upon organic materials and uh, resulting eventually into self-replication of molecular structures. And then after I have that, I have this gradualistic complexity that develops, and it develops through uniform processes over vast amounts of time. And that's what they say. That's their position. And you can see again, I have these by three boxes. I'll get to that in a minute. But this one is the big, is very, very important to them. They need a gradualistic, uniform process. What, what I mean by that is what's happening today. Take for example, erosion the erosion today is a uniform erosion over vast amounts of time the sunlight today is a uniform sunlight over vast amounts of time uh the, all everything is uniform atmospheric elements uniform the amount of uranium uniform the amount of carbon uniform we have a uniform system by and large now there's some there's some uh, obviously that's a general statement there's some slight exceptions but overall the geological sediments, as they were put down, the geological column—that is a uniform process over vast amounts of time—and that is the result. Uh, that results in life coming from non-life. I. Biogenesis. Now, the question becomes: Is that concept? Is that explanation? for the generation of life, and the resultant spectacular current state of low entropy. When I say low entropy, I mean complexity. We have spectacular complexity on this earth. You, by yourself, are spectacularly complex. You know that when you have medical bills. It's Unbelievable. Just a single cell is spectacularly complex. So is this concept that life arose from natural, or life arose from non-life through this uniform process, that's very gradualistic, is that explanation on the generation of life and the spectacular current state of low entropy on Earth able then to circumvent the barrier that is the laws of thermodynamics? And that is almost now where we are. Let me say it a different way. Are the laws of thermodynamics, in fact, a barrier to evolutionary theory? Because they say no. And if you wish, if you want to separate us, uh, we say our side and their side. Their side says no. Our side says yes. They say we don't understand thermodynamics. We say they don't understand thermodynamics. That's how it goes. It's almost like a food fight in a high school cafeteria. So I'm asking the question, is it in fact the case that the laws of thermodynamics, as they define them, I will define them as they define them, I will concede their definition. Why not? I think. Well in fact, I do agree with their definition. I think their definition of thermodynamics is absolutely the case. Is their definition, is thermodynamics a barrier to their evolutionary theory? Put another way, can entropy decrease in an open, non-isolated system? If you haven't been here for the last few weeks, the United States, uh, I'm sorry, United States, the, the Earth is a open, non-isolated system. What I mean by that is I have this big ball of light and heat up in the sky, up in the Uh, Outer reaches, if you will, millions of miles away that uh, provides power, for lack of another term, energy to this earth. It's non-isolated. Does complexity increase in a non-isolated system? The answer is yes, it does. No one disagrees with that. In a non-isolated system, entropy does de- decrease. My house is a non-isolated system. I'm in it, if you want to think of it that way. Every couple of years, I vacuum. I decrease the entropy. Thank you for trying to laugh at that. Lori does not think it's funny. Listen, uh, I lived in Hawaii with these kinds of, uh, as a young man, and that's therefore my my. My law, Chronister's law, of never buy food handled by young men. Just Don't do it. Or if you do eat it, just go, okay, I'm going to die. But I lived in a building where I was not, how do I put it, cognizant of the fact that in Hawaii, the cockroaches outnumbered the people 5,000 to 1, if at that and the ants outnumbered the cockroaches. I had no idea. So there I am with my general eating habits and my general cleaning habits, and I was overrun very quickly. I know what an isolated system is and what it, what an open system is. And entropy does decrease in a non-isolated, in an open system. It it can and it and it does, and everyone agrees. Now the evolutionists will say that everyone doesn't agree, that us, uh, those on the side of intelligent agency with regard to creation or the creation of life, we don't understand open and, and isolated systems. We certainly do. We recognize the sun provides significant energy and that energy is, has a comp- compensation element to it. We got all of that. That's not a problem. Everyone agrees. Here's the question. Must entropy decrease? Just because I have an open system Does that is that now a requirement that entropy decreases? I know in an isolated system, the entropy of a closed isolated system cannot decrease, that's the second law of thermodynamics. But let's set that aside for today. We've covered that already. In an open system like the Earth with the sun, must entropy decrease. In other words, must things get more complicated? Is that a requirement? Is is, in, is intelligent agency required for entropy to decrease? See, there's where our argument is. Is there a non-intelligent mechanism that always results in low entropy or an entropy decrease? Those are the questions that we fight over, if you will. And so, in the weeks to come... A few weeks here, you know, I'm going to continue this probably three or four more weeks and then, then you'll escape. Um, we're going to deal with gradualism and gradualistic theory, uh, and how it must confront biological systems that here have irreducible, uh, complexity. I have a lot of medical professionals in this audience, much to the surprise of everyone. Um, but I do. We, you do. All around you. This is the best place to have in a medical emergency that you could possibly find. We've got, we're surrounded by it um and um they know you f- you folks that have gone through all of that schooling, you know that uh, we have tremendous complexity in biological systems, biological structures, A- and I will argue that it is irreducible complexity, and gradualism theory or gradualistic theory must confront that, and Darwinism at its core is gradualistic, it demands vast amounts of time that is has gradual uniform processes in order for this complexity to occur. So that's what we've been doing, asking questions about vast amounts of time, asking questions about the sun and how it provides energy to a open or non-isolated system, and we are beginning to answer questions about natural selection. Those are the three pillars of evolutionary philosophy. If any one of those pillars goes down, evolutionary philosophy goes down. And so that's why we're dealing with it so that you know what they are and you know what they think and you know what what you think uh and so uh, you have an understanding. Last week at the close of everything it didn't make the uh make the uh the tape I don't believe I'm sure it didn't. I I just said this debate that occurred between Mr. Hamm and Mr. Nye um could have been extraordinarily more complicated. I understand why it wasn't. I'm not saying that they were remiss or anything. I get their their focus but uh But I think that that's a big problem that the church has today, is we're not able to speak in complex terms. And therefore, that that causes us to have tremendous credibility issues. And our kids go to colleges where they run into somebody who is very aggressive and certainly very confident and is never challenged. In fact, if you challenge them, what happens to you? That's right, your grade goes down exponentially. And so you keep your mouth shut and you listen to them bloviate and pontificate, just like you do here, kind of the same thing, same. And no one challenges them. The difference between the reason why no one challenges me and no one challenges them is, is like night and day. You don't challenge them again because you'll be punished. You don't challenge me because I'm always right. It's a huge thanks for laughing. Anyway permineralization, radiocarbon 14, uranium to lead decay, uniform speed of light, the horizon problem with respect to thermal equilibrium, cosmic microwave, background radiation, the universe, the geological column, all of that begins to get you into this discussion on vast amounts of time. That's why I'm doing it. I'm going to bring in the faint young sun paradox again, why the sun... Uh, has the uh, size that it has how big is it? how big would it have been had it been burning for four billion years? When did the sun begin to provide energy to the earth? in other words, when did the isolation isolated system was the system ever isolated, or was the sun in fact always present, providing energy to the earth and if so, if the earth is four point Six billion years old, or whatever. pick whatever number you wish, as they say, then the sun must at least be that age, right? In order for this gradualistic system to occur that gives me uh, spontaneous life, if you will, or the rise of life, I have to have energy. If I don't have that energy for life, then I have very difficult problems, because without that energy, I have an isolated system, and if I have an isolated system or a closed system, then how do I go from disorder to order? Because life is, if anything, tremendous, spectacular order. So, I ask a simple question. How large would the sun be? If it's larger than it is now, significantly, because it's burning fuel, right? How hot was it? And and what's the temperature differential? See, we, we operate as if the sun... And the length of time that it has been providing energy if in the Darwinian gradualistic system is if it has never, um, it's called POW, Pre- present atmospheric levels. There's a term for you that you'll, you'll forget just as soon as you leave here. But I, those kinds of issues come up, and that's why uh, um, the creationist doesn't really have that issue because he thinks the sun was created in a steady state condition, and it's relatively young. The gradualist has to have it be very, very old. What are the consequences to that? we'll discuss that as we go. But anyway, that is all of those subjects that I just rattled off have to do with uh, pillar number three, if you will, the vast amounts of time, the isolated and unisolated systems and thermodynamics. That has to do with the sun because the sun, the evolutionist, is, is emphatic. The sun solves all the problems of evolution. It provides energy. And, and the, the great evolutionist said, and I'll quote him again, Asimov, without the sun, the human brain could never have possibly developed. So they put a tremendous amount of value on the sun, providing energy to an unisolated system, and how that solves thermodynamics. They're confident that thermodynamics, the laws as as they define them, are not in conflict in any way with evolutionary processes. And again, we'll we'll continue that discussion uh, in the weeks to come, and even a little bit today. And eventually, we have to get into uh, biological irreducibility, as I alluded to just a few minutes ago, uh, which is uh, genetics, Mendelian genetics, and the difference between uh, mutation and beneficial mutation, if it even exists, and variation. And then this falsifiability and non-falsifiability. That becomes very important, and that deals with the natural selection element, among other things. Now, admittedly, I'm throwing what to you at you. I've done it, as you know, many, many years. Uh, I'm throwing tremendous vocabulary at you. Um, I have to. I know it seems daunting. Amanda and I were talking about it earlier. It's technical language. I got all that. And it's, uh, I know you can do it. How do I know you can do it? Because I've seen the people that have done it and I've talked to them. See, that's the one thing the scientific community does. It is possible. There was a gentleman who wrote a book a few years ago that said that you can essentially learn any discipline. If you want to be the best trumpet player in the world, and by the way, that's the hardest thing I think I've ever done so far, is trying to master the physics and the air that is in my body and make it a machine that actually plays the trumpet in a pleasant way. Though there is an advantage uh, if you don't like people around you to play the trumpet in a non-pleasant way. Uh, So um, all recluses uh, that are, uh, should in fact take up the trumpet. But the point of it is, is that um, you can learn anything in 10,000 hours was the premise this man wrote. So that's essentially 40 hours a week for five years. You could master anything. Piano, trumpet, you might not be the best in the world, but you will master it. Um, I understand that because of uh, having gone through various apprenticeships in the technical trades as well as the physical trades. Uh, You can learn to do things. I was talking to Eric about, I'm very good at caulking. Very good. I can caulk very fast and perfectly. Because I have done it thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And I don't need any special device to do it. So don't waste your money buying these little devices. They'll sell to you on the do-it-yourself network. I would love to have the people who pretend to be experts on that show. What does it require to be a meteorologist? Do you know Because everybody on TV now is a meteorologist. Do you know that? And you wonder, wow, how hard can it be when all these people are meteorologists? You should look that up someday. What does it take to be one? What does it take to be a general contractor? You would be shocked how easy it is. I had to take an exam, by the way, and most of them do. And I used to watch the ones that had no construction uh, um, capabilities at all come in and try to pass that test. It was hilarious, amusing. I wanted to take the test every week just to watch them all fail it. But you see, the people, what's so amusing about it is the people who decided that you had to have the test exempted themselves, just like Congress does, from the law that you have to take the test. So the ones that said, from now on, general contractors actually have to know something, they don't know anything. I could I could cut them loose, lock them into spinard lumber, for two weeks they couldn't give me a doghouse. I know it. I've worked for them. I've seen it. But they're contractors, they're licensed general contractor, bonded insured. What's that mean? Does that mean knowledge? No. People on TV, I see some blonde, red-headed girl, who weighs a 100 pounds, carrying a worm drive saw around. She doesn't even know what end to plug in. But she's a licensed general contractor. And you listen and believe her, you're going to. You better live where the wind doesn't blow and doesn't rain, certainly doesn't snow. My point is, some things are easy. Anything can be mastered. You learn the technical language. It's just a matter of repetition. Bill and I talk about what's wrong with the public schools all the time. We know we could go into inner-city Detroit and we could teach those kids in a year Raise their grade level tremendously by just doing one thing over and over and over and over again, and that is read. I've said it for 30 years. Read. And I'll make you read, I'll have you read, I'll just, all you'll do is read to me every day, eight hours a day. Watch what happens. Same thing's true here. You hear the vocabulary enough, eventually it will begin to work for you. It'll seem like a huge boulder today, but it'll shrink into a small pebble. And I know that's going to take perseverance. I got all of that. Uh, Catherine last week told me, you know, it's the old eating the elephant. How do I eat an elephant? Well, you you, you cut off a small bite uh, every day. Anyway, that's where we've been and where we're going. What I did—that was the review. So I need to make a few points that I feel need to be included. That may not seem immediately relevant today, uh, but I hope that they will eventually, and that's kind of my motto. It doesn't matter to me, you don't get it today, but eventually I hope you do, and and that seems to be working. The point is, is think of what I do as kind of like a a time bomb. Eventually it will go off, and that's what I'm hoping for. Last Sunday in passing, I brought up John 8.12, John 11.25, and Genesis 1.26 in the context or in reference to irreversible thermodynamics. Uh, the energy required to reverse the tendency towards high entropy. In other words, uh, every system left to its own devices always tends to move from order to disorder. That is the second law of thermodynamics. It all goes towards high entropy, uh, entropy maximum disorder. And there is a reversibility element to it in the sense that we discuss reversibility of entropy. It's on the table for discussion. So we want to take it back into the direction of low entropy. How do I reverse the high entropy tendency? Can it be reversed? And uh, Darwin said that uh, you can reverse high uh, entropy by natural means. You get a spontaneous reversibility. Creationists say no. It requires intelligence in order to have reversibility. It's not a natural process. It's a supernatural design. And so there's no perhaps no better example of high entropy the tending towards disorder than physical death our death the death of animals if you will there is no better example of disorder high entropy than physical death and last week I submitted that God in those three passages I just mentioned John 8:12 11:25 Genesis 1:26 he says that he alone reverses High entropy death. And the implication is, is that he can reverse all high entropy. He can universally do it. He is the only one that does it. He has power over the second law of thermodynamics. And he says so in the Bible. And that he alone is the one that creates matter. Nothing is coming into existence or going out of existence. God says, I am the one that has made that inviolable. I am the one who can, however, change it if I want. It is my law. I have authority over my own laws. says that Genesis 1, 1, all of Genesis 1. And God repeats and repeats and repeats that he alone creates matter and energy and repeats and repeats and repeats that he alone reverses physical death. The high entropy that is physical death. The relationship between the laws of thermodynamics and the authorship of Scripture. Whoever wrote the book. The Bible had a very good understanding of the laws of thermodynamics and said, I have authority over them. We didn't even know what the laws of thermodynamics were until, essentially, Isaac Newton. Well, you make the case that the the world was certainly wiser pre-flood than it was post-flood. And Jesus Christ uh, says exactly what I would expect him to say with regard to thermodynamics in the Bible. And again, the relationship between death and thermodynamics is obvious, even to the shallow reader of Scripture. And and uh, it's everywhere. Everyone knows it's in there, if you understand those two laws. And I expected that. I would expect that. And I submit it's a theme of Scripture, one of the major themes. So to study thermodynamics is to study the mind of God. Why he put it in there. Why he put it in our environment. Our environment is filled with thermodynamics, if you will, the laws. The purpose and the meaning of it, how it relates to death, how it relates to the curse, how it relates to resurrection, how it re- relates to the restoration of all things. He says, I am going to restore all things. Has thermodynamics changed? Has it always been the same? See, is it uniform? Has there been a time when it was not exactly as it is now? The rate of it, for no other reason. Gravity. Has gravity changed in intensity? Has the speed of light changed? Those are questions that always should be discussed in the church. Okay, I'm going, we're going to read Exodus 8. It's about thermodynamics. It's my favorite thermodynamics uh, passage in all of the Bible. So let's go really fast, 16 through 19, because I've got to go quickly. So the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, this is the third plague, by the way. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land. Uh Uh-oh, dust. I'm going to strike the dust. That'll be cool. So that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with with his rod and struck the dust of the earth. And it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice. What's the obvious question? How much lice we got? How much dust you got? I don't want the dust in my house becoming lice. If you live in Alaska, we have lots of dust. If you don't, we have lots of dust. Come visit. Inhale dust. We call dust air here. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there was lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to the Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. we got a lot of life, But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. So, here's the first record of evolutionary philosophy colliding with the Creator God. Out of dust, what happened? Out of dirt, I got what? Life. I got lots of it. But it was not, life rose out of dirt, but it didn't rise out of a universal process over vast amounts of time through gradualism. It happened how fast? Instantly. The energy comes also from an intelligent agency. It did not come from a ball of light and heat in the sky. So right off the bat, I am in conflict immediately, scripturally. God is saying, I do it my way, this other way may not be right. Let me put it better. The other way is in total conflict with what God does. can't be reconciled. God is making something very clear to the Egyptian priests. And they immediately testify, they knew immediately that this was God himself who had done this. It was his finger, let me repeat that, his finger who brought lice out of the dust. Now... Literally in the Hebrew, it means tiny stinging gnat. So, it doesn't really mean lice necessarily. I think the best case is tiny stinging gnat. Barely visible. Very tiny stinging gnat. Okay? And how many do I got? I got trillions of them. So... There's this tremendous amount of meaning here. No time to address it all today. I'll work through it as the weeks come. But connected to the Pharisees, now bringing the adulterous woman in front of God to be stoned. Remember that in John 8, 6-8? through Again, the finger of God is in the dust. So I always ask the obvious question. Did Jesus Christ, when I have the woman brought to him by the Pharisees, he puts his finger in the dust place? I always ask. Most of us ask, what does he write? Because everyone dropped their rocks. I also considered the possibility that he did what? He made tiny stinging gnats. Could have. That would have got everybody's attention. We'll go there in a few weeks. Did Christ make tiny stinging gnats again? Demonstrating that he's the one that did it the first time. Was that one of the witnesses the testimony of what he did there. Anyway, the wisest Egyptians, who will I call them now? These are the smart guys, the smartest, best educated. They know things. They can do things. They can make frogs do things. They can make sticks do things. They have a lot of abilities. They're the smartest people. They're the elite smart. So who shall we call them? Who would be their modern-day equivalent? Well, let's just say the Monistic, scientific community. These are the men that had extraordinary understanding. They're the wise men of Egypt. Exodus 6.11 calls them that. That's who they are. Recognized immediately that life was coming from dust, and that meant that only God could do that. So they were certainly a lot wiser than we are today in our highest wise men academically, right? Note that God covers them with tiny stinging nets. Covers them. Everybody is covered, tiny stinging gnats. Are they having a good day? The meaning of that is not to be missed. Clearly, God has a point here. He's making a statement. God intends for the wise men of Egypt to learn a truth. Many profound truths, actually, but, the first, but first among the many truths is that the creation of life, even a tiny, stinging, flying gnat, is immediate, and it is instant, and it is total, and it is complete, and it is purposed, and it's an intelligent agency at work. That's the testimony of the Bible. That's how he operates. That is not natural selection. I said this to uh, Supper Dave before the, I started today. I said, note that natural selection, by definition, natural selection selects. It's a selecting agent. It's not a creating element. Natural selection, by definition, selects from existing information. Selection, Selecting is not creating. More on that later. This is the differences, uh, of ultimately, between selected variation and new and more complex genetic data. New and more co- complex organs and systems. Can selecting variations cause a new and more complex organ and system to develop? New and more complex genetic data to occur. In other words, does natural selection gain in information or, in fact, lose information? So we'll have that discussion in the weeks to come. Anyway, God at Exodus 8 makes tiny stinging gnats on an immense level. Trillions and trillions of gnats. Instantly, fully functional, totally complete. And what's the obvious question? What happened to the tiny stinging gnats? And for that matter, we got the, uh, fourth plague. What's the fourth plague? That's right. Blood-sucking flies. Ooh, I spilled soda on my oh. nose. I have to lick it off my hand now to get all of it. So, again, the obvious question. What happened to the tiny stinging gnats and the swarms of blood-sucking flies of the fourth plague, Exodus 8, through 25? Well, that's obvious, and you should know it immediately. They all came to Alaska. Everyone knows that. If you don't believe that, go up north. But for now, notice the creation of life from dust. This is insects. We have a supernatural creation of insects at Exodus 8. And that becomes an important issue. That is the chronology of insects. I have to know where the insects fit. How do they fit in? And God obviously can make them at will and does, along with the chronology of the fall of Satan. I have to have both of those things fit into all of my... uh, My doctrine, if you will, and we won't do that today. However, if you have any questions, see Catherine. She's on her way to becoming an expert on the chronology of insects and the creation of them. She will. She doesn't think so, but she will. It's repetition. It's small, tiny steps. Think tiny, stinging steps. There, that's a joke. Let us take on uh, a few other things as quickly as possible. We really have to move now. Whilst uh, I'm going to render a small uh, amount of justice to every subject, and it's going to be small. It is a condition that both sides of the origin of life argument, uh, the evolutionary side, the monist side, and the dualist side, the Christian side, will state that the other side is non-falsifiable. In other words, they say that our position is non-falsifiable. No matter what they say, we always say God did it. It's called the God of the gaps, where there's a gap. You can't explain this. For example, insects, you can't explain insects. And we say, well, God does what he wants. And they go, well, that's non-falsifiable. No matter what I say to you, you always say God does what he wants. And we say that they're non-falsifiable. In other words, we say there's no evidence that can be presented which would render the premise disproven. No matter what we say, no matter what evidence we find, you will say, no, doesn't disprove anything. And I previously stated, I made this connection between anthropogenic global warming. And evolution, because I see the same arguments and the same people on the same sides, fascinates me. And anthropogenic global warming is non-falsifiable. That's uh, without dispute. Now, no evidence exists that can ever be cited that will be accepted by the proponents of anthropogenic global warming. They are resolute. They just merely adapt their premise. Uh, they, uh, contrary evidence, however abundant, become evidence for their belief somehow. They beat it to fit. It won't have, You can't change them. Nothing will ever change them. No evidence matters. Bill and I have a saying here: when we come in contact with people that uh, do this to us, uh, the truth does not matter. Get used to that. It does not matter. Non-falsifiable uh, arguments are very common, and I submit the evolutionary philosophy is likewise, though they insist otherwise. They usually say that human fossils or remains found in Precambrian strata would accomplish the destruction of Darwinianism. Um, I don't think it would. The Bible does say rocks will cry out. The Bible does say that the Antichrist replaces evolution with worship of the Antichrist. Um, but I don't think that you could find a pre-Cambrian human being, um, fossil or otherwise, uh, in that strata, I don't think it will affect Darwinianism at all. They would just dismiss it as as burial intrusions, anomalies. And again, to be fair, the monists say similar things about us dualists. Anything that they consider evidence is rejected by us as well, and, and we refute their evidence, and they attempt to refute ours, and we just go back and forth. But I submit that uh, intelligent agency is susceptible to falsif- uh, falsification. In other words, if an intelligent being, God... Created life, that premise is subject and susceptible to falsification. Darwinianism is not subject. It's impervious to falsification. And that means it's not valid. It is The fact that it is impervious, resistant, isn't a strong enough word. um, You cannot falsify Darwinian evolution. And that means it's not valid. It destroys it. The fact that it's non- falsifiable destroys it. I'll see if I can see if I can make sense of that for you. At least I'll try. It's not really resolvable, but um, so I'm not going to resolve it. Warning: um, Don't hold your breath here. But I believe we should try, and at least uh, we'll know the problem better. The issue quickly becomes the definition of irreducibility or irreducible complexity. We have to define irreducibility or irreducible complexity. Evolutionary biologists mostly agree that many biological systems are irreducibly complex. They will admit that. They know that's true, especially the ones that work in medicine and mathematics. The, the chemists, uh, at least, are beginning to recognize that. But. but they do say, yes, they're irreducibly complex, but evolutionary processes uh, can at least, in theory, directly account for this complexity. It is true, again, back to the, uh, uh, the open system here. It is true that if I put energy into an open system, which is the definition of an open system, if energy is coming in, entropy can decrease. That's not the question. We all agree. My, cons- my question is, will it always or must it decrease? They agree that there's irre- irreducible complexity in biological systems, at least the honest candid ones do, the, the non rabid ones. But they think that in theory, there's a theory of evolution that can directly account for this complexity. And I'm going to say to you that theory is non falsifiable, which renders it Destroy, frankly. An intelligent agency argues the opposite, that evolution cannot do this. It cannot account for irreducible complexity. No unintelligent process can produce an irreducible system. That's what the other side says. So it merely now is necessary to produce an experiment. We have two sides. One side says uh, an unintelligent process cannot produce biologically irreducible complexity. The other side says, yes, in theory we can. So let's get an experiment. Let's find, all we've got to do is find a, a, an unintelligent process that can produce an irreducible complex system. Just one. Give me one. And again, we're going to have to define irreducible complexity. It's not as simple as it seems. And I suggest the following, and it's not adequate. It's just going to be the best we're going to do today. I'm going to say this. In a living creature, a number of distinct parts that work in concert on a single function, such that if any part is missing, the function is rendered inoperable. That is irreducible complexity. Does that make sense? I'll repeat it over the next weeks. I know it's not sufficient, but at least we can use it as a starting point. Give you a couple examples we'll cover. The next system of a giraffe. If any of those parts are missing, how's it going to go for the giraffe? We're going to talk about that. Blood clotting. Another one we'll do probably next week. Obviously, if I were to lose an arm or an eye or an ear or all three, I would be more attractive right off the bat, especially if I lost the nose. We all agree with that. Um, But if I lose the blood clotting system, uh, that's a a big problem. I can still function. Uh, My trumpet teacher all the time says, If only you would no longer be able to hear, you would be a much better trumpet player. Just by the nature of statistical probability, you'd get a note right occasionally as... As opposed to what you're doing now. Thank you for laughing. I tell him, I say these things. It just uh, does not help my, he still makes me pay. Anyway, blood clotting system, lungs, you can think of others. If natural selection were shown capable of producing a system of a certain degree of complexity, then intelligent agency would be disproven. For example, the noted biologist Michael—I uh, hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly—Behe, I believe, is how it is pronounced. Uh, suggested that bacterial flagellum, which is an appendage, if you want to think of it this way, uh, flagellum is uh, Latin for whip. Uh, I'll, I'll draw badly. Bacterial flagellum—I have a tail, if you will, coming out of a uh, out of bacteria, an appendage, and its purpose is locomotion. It rotates. It also is sensory, so it figures things out by touching it, if you will. And it's made up of protein, and it has an engine that is powered, primarily there's some sodium ion systems, I guess if you wish, but it's primarily powered by proton motive force. When I went to school for physics, my field was electromotive force. This is proton motive force. And so what I have is I have a flow of protons uh, across the bacterial cell membrane. And that, uh, you, you want to think of it this way, I, I, have a, I have an engine powered by that proton flow. And that engine uh, is attached biologically to that flagellum and it rotates the flagellum and I get locomotion that way. I get motion and the, uh, moving the cell structure around the flagellum of a bacterial entity, a bacterial cell. Now, Behe posed this, can this system that's in a bacterial cell be produced by an unintelligent mechanism? So that becomes the question. That's pretty small. But again, I have a bacterial cell that has, if you want to think about it, an outboard motor, and an impeller, and a propeller, and that thing has an electrical flow across it, if you want to think of it that way, and a rotor, and that rotor is attached by a pinion system, think locomotive, this is why we had to study it, by the way, if you want to know where I found out about bacterial flagellum, I learned about it through traction motor theory and locomotive classes that I was sent to against my will, but learned to like, which makes me weird, which is why you have to go through it too. But think of it this way. I have a motor system with a pinion gear and a transfer, and I am spinning that flagellum. And that little bacterial guy, that rotor turns very fast in comparison, by the way, the RPMs. We'll get to that next week. But off he goes. So this becomes a question. Can, Can this be produced by an unintelligent mechanism? I'm going to tell you that that is the tiny stinging gnat. It's actually smaller than the tiny stinging gnat. I'm not making you pick up a tiny stinging gnat. You get to you get to make your own bacterial flagellum. How tough is that? That was proposed again by a noted biologist who said it can't be done. So all a scientist could do is place a bacterial all he needs to do is place a bacterial species lacking a flagellum under some selective pressure. So it doesn't have he he, he wants to, he wants to pressure it for mobility. So he has bacterial species. And he has selective pressure for mobility. In other words, he's going to put pressure on it so that it needs to move. And can he grow it for thousands and thousands of generations and see if a flagellum could be produced or any other equally complex motor system? That's all he's got to do. How hard is that? Let's do it. And if it were possible, intelligent agency would suffer a significant defeat. Now, they've tried it. And scientists have deleted proteins. They have deleted proteins from the flagellum, or from the bacterial cell, and the flagellum remained functional and propulsion remained intact. But they were able to go from 40 proteins down to 33 proteins, and they said, see, we're able to delete proteins from it. Well, it's true, it's still moving. But we have proven that it can move with less proteins. And that's significant. They say that that is proof that it's an evolutionary process could make it work. Now, I can remove a leg and continue moving, Um, but that doesn't answer how is the leg developed from an unintelligent process to begin with. Loss of information that only slightly affects the system is not evidence that the system arose from a simpler secretion propulsion method. In other words, they say, because we can reduce the number of proteins, uh, we can then say, make the leap, that uh, there are other systems of propulsion that are secretion-based. Does that make sense? In other words, I'm pushing something out and I move by that means. So the, the secretion system evolved into the propulsion system because we can remove proteins from the propulsion system and it still propels. That's their answer to that. Have they ever taken a bacterial cell that has no flagellum, put it under selective pressure for mobility, and created motion? Never done it. If they did do it, they would do a tremendous damage to the theory of intelligent agency. Now, I don't call call it a theory lightly. It's not. So, the theory of evolution must include an account of how intricate chemical and biological systems arise or might have arisen from inanimate molecules over time and small steps through selective pressures. If life is not designed, such evolutionary accounting answers will exist. They'll find it. It has to be. If life is not designed, then I'll concede their evolutionary answers. Now they'll also say we'll talk about a man named uh, uh, Crick who says that Francis Crick that uh, life on earth came from aliens that's something that uh, Richard Dawkins also believes We'll get into that uh, as and we must because they it's common but if life is designed they'll never never find a process they'll never be able to produce this experiment they'll never Put a bacterial flagellum, or without a flagellum, and create a flagellum with selective pressure, and that, and and that's those of us who see intelligent in, intelligence in biological life. That's what we say. It's exactly you'll never find it. So go ahead, run the tests. I want you to run the tests. I'm not afraid of the tests. Run them, experiment away, all uh, away. I'll wait. I'll even contribute my taxes. I'm wanting you to falsify, I'm submitting intelligent agency to falsification. Do it. But on the other hand, you see, evolution is not testable. It's not falsifiable. It's re- impervious, resistant to falsification. You see, just think of it this way. What experiment, what experimental evidence could possibly be found? That would falsify the belief that complex living cell mechanisms evolved by a Darwinian, I'm sorry, complex living cell machines evolved by a Darwinian mechanism. If a flagellum cannot be selected into functionality or even existence, what does the evolutionist say to that? If he says, you're right, we have done this, this test, trying to make a flagellum, Out of non-flagellum bacterial cells, we've done everything. We've hit it with light. We've hit it with energy, electricity, we've radiation. We've done everything we could. We pressured it for mobility so it it needed to develop something to move, and we couldn't do it. It never happened. And we would say, see? And they would say, all that means is what? We we picked the wrong bacteria. We have the wrong bacterial species. Uh, We use an incorrect pressure mechanism for mobility. Uh, we didn't have enough generations. We have some other ingredient that's missing. There is an unseen Darwinian path, they say, or mechanism yet to be discovered. And they say this, it may never be discovered. In other words, I, we will never know the Darwinian path that took a non-flagellum bacterial cell and produced a flagellum. We'll never know that path. In fact, it not only will never be discoverable, it probably doesn't even exist. And there's no trace of it ever existing. That's what they'll tell you. The right bacteria intermediary, if you will, doesn't exist. That's the evolutionary mindset. You will never be able to get a secretion system and put it under mobility pressure and turn it into a flagellum system because we're missing the intermediary that no longer exists. And we'll never discover it. And we'll never have the right pressure. And we'll never have the right bacteria. And it will never be found. But evolution is true. It's therefore impossible to falsify evolution. It's the evolutionary mindset. And therefore evolution is not valid. They will admit that the beginnings of evolutionary pathways are unimaginable. They cannot even envision them. They can't conceive them. But that does not mean they don't exist. Those evolutionary pathways somehow exist. That's a quote by a professor of biology from the University of Chicago. I didn't make that up. And I expect it, by the way, to be uh, non-falsifiable. That's exactly what I would expect evolution to be, because it has to be non-falsifiable, because why it exists. I was supposed to say last page, Amanda. Sorry. I have a code with Amanda now. The last page code. And I forgot it. So now I'm stalling. I should probably do something musical, except I can't. Who would like to hold Lindsay's baby while, while we, the musicians come forward? <laughs> I'm drinking soda. I'll go Mr. Bojangles here in a minute. That's only funny if you're my age. But they say evolutionary pathways, if they never are found, it doesn't mean they don't exist. So the fact that we can never find something means that nonetheless it's not falsified. And again, that's the absolute perfect definition of non-falsifiable. You can't get any more perfect than that. It's exactly what I expect. Because evolution must be non-falsifiable. And then that's the why of evolution. Next week I'll explain what that means. I hope you come and hear more of the exact same terminology and vocabulary for which you can go home and impress your neighbors and your children. That's the most fun part. And also next week we're going to get into the evolutionary explanation of consciousness. How it is my mind is not my brain. But yet controls my brain. Their explanation for that. Uh, Mr. Nye, to his credit, got this question in that debate. And do you remember his answer? Did you ever notice his answer? They don't, uh, they don't say it very often. He said this. We don't know how it is. We cannot explain consciousness at all. Someday we may. So therefore, what, what is that? Non-false fun. It immediately invi- validates his position. He doesn't know that and he doesn't care. That's the one thing about non-falsifiable premises. They don't care that they're non-falsifiable. Let's rise and be dismissed.